Welcome to Whores Talk Whore. We're not really whores. We just like wordplay. Hello and welcome to Whores Talk Whore. I'm Sharon. And I'm Melinda. Welcome to our very special, heartwarming, fun-filled Christmas true crime episode. Okay, it's not all heartwarming, but we decided to make it somewhat fun. We have a couple of serious stories and a couple of not-so-serious stories to share with y'all. So grab a glass of nog, curl up in front of the fire. If you don't have a fireplace, I don't know, go sit in front of your radiator or (laughs) heating duct. Uh, Candle work. Um, And join us for our first Christmas true crime episode. And I do not have nog, but I do have a glass of podcast juice, a.k.a. sparkling wine, because it's Sunday fun day. (laughs) All right. Let's get started with our first story. We have the disappearance of the Sodder children, which I have not heard of this story before. And when I told Mindy I was going to do it, she said she heard of it, but she didn't know all the details. So um, hopefully you'll learn a little bit new. But goddamn, I can't believe I never heard of this story before. It is crazy. All right. So let's get into this. On Christmas Eve in 1945, a fire destroyed a home in Fayetteville, West Virginia. George and Jenny Sauter lived in that home with nine of their ten children. That is a lot of children. That is a lot. Uh, Their oldest son, Joe, was overseas fighting in WW2. I was going to say, did the last children have to, like, sleep out in the shed or something? Man, I don't <laughs> I don't know how they had room for 10 kids. But Hey, um, man, back in the day, they'd sleep on the floor, right? Probably, or share beds. Um, George and Jenny Sauter were able to escape their burning house with four of their children. The remaining five Sauter children were never accounted for. A little bit of background on the family. George and Jenny Sauter were Italian immigrants who came to the U.S. separately As children, George started his own trucking company in West Virginia, and the two were a respected middle-class family and also apparently huge opponents of birth control because, once again, 10 children. Okay. Um, When is this? 1940s? 1945. Okay. Uh, I believe birth control existed back then. In some form, Uh, at least. (laughs) Seriously. George also had strong political opinions he expressed, which some people did not like, especially in the immigrant community. He was strongly opposed to Italian dictator Benito Mussolini. Mm. So at 12.30 a.m. on Christmas, Jenny Sauter woke up to the phone ringing. She answered the phone, and a woman whose voice she did not recognize asked for a name Jenny was not familiar with. She heard other voices in the background, along with clinking glasses and weird laughter. When Jenny got off the phone, she checked on her children. She had allowed her kids to stay up late, playing with their new toys. Downstairs, she found that the lights were still on and the curtains were open, with Marion, one of her oldest daughters, asleep on the couch. Typically, the last person to go to sleep would turn down the house. She assumed that her other children had neglected to do their chores and had gone straight to sleep in the attic, so she headed back to bed herself. At 1 a.m., Jenny woke up again to the sound of an object hitting the house's roof with a loud bang and then a rolling noise. She went back to sleep. At 1.30 a.m., Jenny woke up again, this time to the smell of smoke. She got up and found a fire in George's office, 
Also, that it was where the fuse box and telephone wires were. Oh, my God. Jenny woke up George, and they escaped the house with four children. Marion, 17, Sylvia, age 2, John, 23, and George Jr., 16. Unable to get upstairs to the attic because of the flames, they frantically called the children, but there were no responses. As the family desperately tried to rescue their children, a series of odd events would later convince the Sodders something much more sinister had occurred. The family tried to call for help, but their phone was dead. So Marion ran to a neighbor's house to call the fire department. George went to grab his ladder to get the children down from the second floor while waiting for the fire department, but the ladder, which was normally resting against the side of the house, was not in its usual place or anywhere else that he looked. Since the ladder was nowhere to be found, George decided to drive his truck underneath the window and climb on top of it to try and reach his children, but neither of George's trucks would work, even though both were in good working condition the previous day. Meanwhile, Marion, who was at the neighbor's house to phone the fire department, could not get through to an operator. Someone at a nearby tavern, seeing the blaze, also called the fire department, but again, there was no operator to make the call. For an hour, George Sr., Jenny, George Jr., John, Marion, and Sylvia watched from the front yard of their house while it burned to the ground with their five other family members trapped inside. That included Maurice, age 14, Louis, 9, Martha, 12, Jenny, 8, and Betty, 5. No fire truck arrived at the scene for seven hours, even though the fire chief knew that there were children in the house and that the firehouse was a mere two miles away. The fire department tried to explain the delay by saying that the fire department didn't even have a siren back then. So when someone would call to report a fire, they would have to reach an operator who would then have to call one of the firefighters, and if it was in the middle of the night, you know, try and wake them up, and then that firefighter would have to reach out to another firefighter, and so on and so forth. Um, also, the fire department at that time was small and volunteer only because most of the firefighters were overseas serving in the war. Mm. So when the fire department finally arrived at 8 a.m., remember, 1.30 a.m. was when they realized their house was on fire, the rest of the Sauter family assumed that the remaining five children perished in the fire. Jesus. However, as the firefighters began going through the ashes of the Sauter house, they did not find any bones. Contrary to the lack of evidence, the fire chief insisted that the children died in the fire. Four days after the fire, George bulldozed the home, intending to make a memorial garden for his children. Death certificates for the children were issued. However, after things calmed down, the family began to question what really happened. The events that occurred that night simply did not make sense. For starters, the family's Christmas lights stayed on through the beginning part of the blaze, and this would not have occurred if it was truly an electrical fire, as investigators concluded that it was. Uh, also, there was the disappearance of the ladder that I mentioned. Uh, when it was finally found, 
Somehow it had been moved from the side of the house where it should have been and instead was hidden in an embankment near the home. Uh, no idea how huh. that got there. Okay. Uh, as was also mentioned earlier, there was confusion by George about why neither of his previously working trucks wouldn't start that night. It was also later found out by the telephone company that the reason that the phone in the solder house was not working that night, even though only an hour earlier someone managed to phone the solder home, was because someone had crawled up a telephone pole and cut the phone lines leading to the solder's house. Oh my God. It was also very odd that while sorting through the rubble, Jenny Sauter said that they found kitchen appliances that were still intact. But how could the fire not damage them more if it had truly burned human bones to ash? Jenny tried to burn animal bones to ash and was unable to do so. She contacted a crematorium that told her that a two-hour fire at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit would still leave human bones intact. In 1949, the site of the house fire was excavated. Human vertebrae bones were found, but an expert said that they could only come from a human aged 16 to 23 who had never been exposed to fire. The oldest of the missing children was 14 at the time of the fire. He also noted that it was very strange that more bones weren't found. Absolutely. Um, As he also concluded that bones should not have burned up in this situation. Then there is a possible witness. A local bus driver who passed through Fayetteville late Christmas Eve said that he had seen some people throwing, quote, balls of fire, end quote, at the house. Goodness gracious. <laughs> Great balls of fire. Um, hey. A few months later, when the snow had melted, a small, hard, dark green rubber ball-like object was found in the brush nearby. George, recalling his wife's account of a loud thump on the roof before the fire, said it looked like a pineapple bomb, hand grenade, or some other incendiary device used in combat. The family later claimed that contrary to the fire marshal's conclusion, the fire had started on the roof, although by then there was no way to prove it. Reported sightings of the missing children also began to roll in. The first report came from a woman who claimed to have spotted the children looking out the window of a passing car as the fire enveloped the house. At a tourist stop between Fayetteville and Charleston, about 50 miles west of the Sauter home, another woman claimed to have seen the children on Christmas morning. She told the police that she had served them breakfast and that there was also a car with Florida license plates at the tourist stop as well. A woman who ran a Charleston hotel claimed to have seen the children approximately a week afterwards. She said in a statement, quote, I do not remember the exact date. The children had come in around midnight with two men and two women, all of whom appeared to be of Italian extraction. When I attempted to speak to the children, one of the men looked at me in a hostile manner. He turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking to me. There was also another account from a woman in St. Louis who claimed that Martha was living in a convent and a bartender in Texas overheard two people bragging about kidnapping the children and setting the fire, among many other stories. Obviously, it's impossible for the children to be in so many different places around the same time. So, well, you know, maybe they're supernatural. 
<laughs> I'm kidding. Sorry. Keep Don't going. think that's the case here. But um, yeah, so, you know, it's just obviously you have to kind of follow up on all the leads. And, you know, it made George and Jenny begin a campaign to find out what really happened. And the case of the Sodder children would become an enduring mystery, which would fascinate America for decades, obviously, since it's 2020. And we are still talking about this today. I mean, this case is truly baffling. And we will kind of discuss that a little bit more after um, I finish uh, the rest of the details of the story. But man, uh, the couple just knew in their hearts that this was deliberate. Not only that, but no sign of the children meant that their children were still alive. They were out there somewhere, out there with someone. One of the strongest theories which George and Jenny came to believe was that their children had been abducted by the Sicilian Mafia. In retaliation for Italian immigrant George's outspoken criticism of Mussolini and the fascist government back in his homeland. Hmm. Two months before the fire, a traveling insurance salesman tried to sell George a policy, but when George declined, he was shocked by the salesman's response. So this is from the salesman, quote, your goddamn house is going to go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. You're going to pay for the dirty remarks you've been making about Mussolini, end quote. Around the same time, a stranger appeared at the home asking George, George, who owned a trucking company at that time, uh, he asked him about hauling work. And walking to the back of the house, the stranger pointed out two fuse boxes and said, quote, this is going to cause a fire someday, end quote, even though George had just had his wiring checked by the local power company who pronounced it safe. And just weeks before the fire, some of the Sadar children had noticed two people in a car watching them on their way home from school, and they told their parents about it. But despite the suspicions, the family never received any communication from the Italian mafia, who were known for using kidnapping to extort money from their victims' families. And two years after the fire, George and Jenny went directly to FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover to ask for help in investigating the disappearance of their five children. He agreed to help if local authorities would allow it, but inexplicably, the Fayetteville police and the fire departments would not allow the FBI to investigate. So the Sodders could not think of any reason why they would refuse to do so um, unless there was some sort of cover up. So they contracted a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley, who discovered that the insurance salesman that threatened George was actually a member of the coroner's jury that deemed the fire accidental, what? further adding to this mystery. I know. <laughs> it goes deep. There's just, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, we'll discuss it. Uh, he also found out that the fire chief, F.J. Morris, had confided to a local priest about how he had discovered a human heart in the ashes and hid it in a dynamite box and buried it at the scene. Tinsley persuaded Fire Chief Morris to go with him to dig up the box, but the heart that was found inside actually turned out to be beef liver 
and it was untouched by the fire. Soon after, the Sodders heard rumors that the fire chief had told others that he had buried the beef liver in the rubble in the hope that the family would conclude that their children really had died there and give up claiming that they had been abducted. Which is so stupid. Like, why would a heart survive? And why would it be in a box? Like, uh, yeah, I have so many questions. I know. About I was going to say, I have so many questions too. I'm just waiting. I think to go through. I mean, all I of just it. think the fire chief was an idiot. Yeah. If that's if that's part of the story is actually true, I mean, who knows? It, it, there are so many rumors surrounding this story that that part could be made up. I, I don't know, but it literally makes absolutely no sense why you would think that finding a human heart buried in a dynamite box would have survived the fire. Like how? Yeah. Anyways. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 um, just keep going. I have tons of questions. <laughs> um, so subsequent hearings failed to find any answers, telling the Sodders that their search was hopeless and declaring the case closed. Undeterred, George and Jenny erected a billboard along Route 16, near the scene of the fire, offering a $10,000 reward for information leading to the recovery of their children. George also traveled the country to investigate each lead, but he always returned home without any answers. In 1968, more than 20 years after the fire, Jenny went to get the mail and found an envelope that was addressed only to her. It was postmarked in Kentucky with no return address, and it contained a photo of a man in his mid-twenties with features comparable to their oldest son, Louis, who was only nine years old at the time of the fire. By the way, $10,000 in about 1950 is a little over $100,000 today. That was what they were offering. I wonder where they got that money from. Or they they may not have had it. They might have just said anything to try and get somebody to give them answers. Good point. Um, so on the back of the, the photograph was a handwritten note that read, quote, Louis Sodder, I love brother Frankie, ill, ill boys, which I'm not sure what that means. It's, it was literally I L I L boys. And then a nine zero one three two or possibly, um, a nine zero one three five, which I don't know if that was like a license plate of a car, Mm. um, yeah, no one really knows what any of that meant, um, but most people familiar with the case believe that it was just a cruel prank, especially since there was no solder child named Frankie. Um, but still, the man very much resembled Lewis and had like the same dark curly hair, dark brown eyes, same nose, same eyebrows. So the Sodders hired a private detective and sent him to Kentucky to investigate, but they never heard from him again. What um, the fuck? Hope, I know. I'm hoping they didn't give him any money and he just like took their money and ran because um, that's even more heartbreaking. Um, and then even sadder on top of that, George and Jenny, they put the photograph along um, the other photographs on that billboard and they also enlarged the photo and hung it over their fireplace, oh, which is just like, Oh, so heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they never they never lost hope that they would find their children. In an interview in 1966, George, now age 71, said, quote, Time is running out for us, but we only want to know. If they did die in the fire, we want to be convinced. 
Otherwise, we want to know what happened to them, end quote. And he died the following year, still hoping for a breakthrough in the case. Oh, man. And never, never finding out what happened to his five children. And Jenny, she lived the rest of her life in isolation, wearing only black. And she had done that since the fire as a sign of mourning for her kids. And the billboard for her children offering that $10,000 reward actually remained up until shortly after Jenny's death in 1989. Um, Their quest for answers was then taken up by their grown-up children, or their now grown-up children, uh, but all but one of them had passed away without ever finding any answers. And the last surviving Sodder child is Sylvia, who is only two years old at the time of the fire. She's now 77 years old and is just as convinced as her parents were that her lost siblings did not die in the fire on that faithful Christmas Eve 75 years ago. She is still hoping that she will find out the truth before it is too late. And she still occasionally interacts with online sleuths in the hopes of finding answers before she too passes away. Wow. So that is the story of the Sodder children disappearance. Um, So I honestly don't really know what to think about whether or not the kids were in the fire or not. I definitely think it was arson. I think you can make the case like without a doubt that this was arson. It was not an electrical fire. It was not an accident. But um, the, the part that just confuses me is, okay, so if people deliberately set this fire, one, did they plan on kidnapping some of the children? And if they did, how did they know where to find them? Like, how did they know that there was five kids in the attic? Or maybe they planned to start the fire in the attic, and so someone went up there and they happened to find the kids sleeping and made them leave. And I don't know, maybe they didn't realize how many kids were in the house and they thought, okay, well let's kill the parents or kill George or whatever, but let's save the kids. And then they only took half the kids. But also, how do you get five kids out of an attic without anyone in the household hearing or waking up? I mean, well, Jenny before heard- we even get that far, why? Yeah. I mean, clearly, like, this was the entire town that was behind this, it sounds like. Possibly, or at least someone with connections to the police and fire department. Right, because like the operator was unavailable even when somebody else tried to call. And you had said that the, I mean, I get that it was in the middle of the night, but I'm sorry, the fire station was two blocks away and nobody. Two miles. Oh, two miles away. sorry. But still, two miles, it sounds like it would have been, the flames would have been pretty high and there would have been a bunch of commotion. You would think just naturally somebody would have heard or ran to the fire station and like banged on the door or something. Well, I mean, there was the guy in the tavern that heard and tried to call the fire department as well. But the operator was available. Yeah, I don't I don't know. And like I said, it's small town. You know, I don't I don't know how things worked back then. But if the operator was asleep, I don't know why you wouldn't have an operator 24 seven. I have no idea. So I I, and the fact that the town would not uh, they wouldn't work with the FBI like that. I'm curious as to what it's not the town. It's the fire department and the police department. So I think there's ties to the fire department and the police department. I don't think the whole town is in on this. I think it's 
connections to the fire department and the police department. And if it does have anything to do with the mafia, then, you know, well, maybe yeah. they're paying off the cops. That's the only thing because if, because I mean, clearly somebody tampered with his truck, somebody moved his ladder, like, mm-hmm. and I was, I had a question about what the noises were that Marion heard, right? The That was no, the, it. It was Jenny. Oh, Jenny, the, the mom. mom. She uh, woke up with a phone call and then she woke up because she heard something hit the roof and roll out. So she woke up because she heard something hit the roof and r- roll down the roof. You would think she would wake up hearing possible noises of like five of her kids climbing down a ladder or, if, you know, from their house or. I mean, if those were the fire bombs or whatever it was that they, they threw. Yeah, you're right. I just don't. I feel like there would have been more of a ruckus. My my brain is like freezing because there's too many questions because I'm just like, I just don't get it. Like, well, also, if there was five kids still trapped in the house, do you think one of you would think one of them would have started screaming? You know, right. I mean, I know some people die of um, asphyxiation from the smoke if there's a fire. But I can't imagine that like all five of them like, would have didn't died wake up. Yeah. from the smoke. And also if the fire department and the police department were part of this cover up, maybe there were bones found in the ashes and they just didn't tell the family that they found them. That's a good point because that was what I was going to say is I could see like that's happened in other cases where like, you know, it's kind of a mercy that, like, you find out that the kids that were closest to the fire, like, never woke up. They died from smoke inhalation in their sleep. Like, hopefully they didn't suffer. So, like, part of me was like, yeah, okay, I could see, especially if they're in an attic and it happened that fast and everyone's sleeping. Like, you're waking up. Your de- your reaction time is delayed. But, yeah, why wouldn't there at least be evidence of them? But that's fucked up, though. Like, what reason would they have to not tell the parents that they found the bodies or the bones of their kids. Because the mafia paid them off or they're part of the mafia. That's the only thing I can think of is that they hid the evidence of their bodies and maybe there were a few vertebrae that they missed and that's where those few vertebrae came from when they excavated the site. Because otherwise then, whose vertebrae are those? (laughs) That just opens like a whole other mystery. And, you know, this is back in the 40s. So they said that the vertebrae was from like a 16 to what, 23 year old. And the oldest kid was 14. I mean, that's like a two year difference. It could have been a vertebrae from a 14 year old. I don't think science was super accurate back then. But then if they also found appliances that didn't melt, that's odd. Well, I don't, I mean. I'm not a a fire expert, so I don't. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to (laughs) say. Neither am I. So weird. Um, yeah, I don't know. But I, the whole thing is just very sad that, like, these parents, like, that was all they thought about, it seemed like. I mean, the whole family, that's all they thought about for the rest of their lives and, and never having an answer. Um, huh. So, yeah, uh, a lot to think about. Yeah. Um, oh. All right, so Mindy, you have a little palate cleanser for us after that um, before you go on to your true crime story? Uh, I do. I actually have two. Uh, They're relatively short, but uh, they both kind of made me chuckle. Uh, So I just wanted to, yeah, we needed a little bit of a palate cleanser here. So this first story happened in South Carolina in 2006, um, and nobody got hurt. I'm going to say that at the beginning 
So it's okay to kind of giggle. But uh, in early December 2006, 42-year-old David Allen Rogers was caught drunk driving afloat in the Anderson, South Carolina Christmas Parade. Uh, To be precise, he was driving the truck that hauled the float for the local Steppin' Out Dance Studio, uh, on which rode both adults and children, one of which was actually Rogers' own child. Uh, Witnesses say that Rogers was driving in line during the Sunday parade when he suddenly pulled out to pass a tractor in the parade. Uh, He proceeded to then speed down Main Street, run a red light, all while pulling, I'm assuming, screaming children. A witness on the float (laughs) called 911 with a cell phone, according to local police. Rogers gave officers a chase for three miles. Again, pulling a parade float behind him and then finally pulled over and tried attacking an officer. (laughs) Uh, Cops found an open container in the truck that Rogers was driving and uh, he faced more than three dozen charges, including a DUI, 18 counts of kidnapping and assaulting an officer. (laughs) Is Um, that one count per kid or per person? Oh my God. Yeah. Okay, so I... I'm just picturing like 18 children just like screaming. Like I'm glad I think it's funny because no one was hurt, obviously, but like just the visuals of that are a hundred percent. And I immediately thought of the the finale to Animal House where they have their parade <laughs> ramming speed. Like, yeah, and the scre- anytime children are screaming in a comedic sense, it's just funny to me. So that's that that's why this tickled me. I don't know. Okay. In um, David Allen Rogers defense, I lived in a very small town for a while where um, tractors would drive down the street and they do go very, very slow. <laughs> uh-huh. Wait, 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 wait. I'm pretty sure wasn't the tractor in the parade? I know, but he was drunk. He didn't realize. <laughs> well, because he figured he'd <laughs> probably go like two miles an hour. It's South Carolina. Like, you know, it's a Sunday. So frustrating driving behind a tractor. I will. I've done it before and it sucks, especially. Yeah. When when you can't uh, easily go around it because it's a a two lane road and there is speeding traffic coming the other way. Um, So, I mean, yeah, I still I'm not condoning his behavior. I can just understand how frustrating it is. He was probably. Yeah. Like, oh, fuck this tractor. And then fuck this parade. And then just decided to take off. I think he forgot he was in a parade. I Exactly. <laughs> he, he just thought he was driving. Well, so here's the thing, though. What about his kid? Because his kid was on the float. How embarrassing would that be to be like, holy shit, my dad's the one who got drunk and like got a DUI in the Christmas parade? Like, I don't know. I don't know how old his kid was, but like, that's like two to three years of therapy when the kid grows up, if not more, for sure. I would have to imagine that. But at least his kid is probably like, I'm never touching alcohol ever. (laughs) He became a total teetotaler. Right. The second story I had uh, was actually kind of based on a, a little joke that a friend of mine had with me in high school. Um, unfortunately, my high school dreams of a baby Jesus hood ornament are now shot. <laughs> uh, Sharon and I talk a lot about how we grew up, thankfully, before the world of YouTube and the internet. 
We lived in a smallish town and junior year of high school, uh, I remember driving around with some friends, bored, and my friend Paul and I laughed about rearranging lawn art in humorous ways. Um, Since it was near Christmas, we joked about getting a light up baby Jesus and using it as a hood ornament on my friend's truck. Well, as classy. Right. As with many dreams, our hood ornament dream apparently died in Wellington, Florida in 2008 when baby Jesus disappeared from the nativity scene on the lawn of a community center. An article from NBCNews.com literally said, quote, when baby Jesus disappeared last year from a nativity scene on the lawn of the Wellington, Florida community center, village officials didn't follow Star to locate him, unquote. Baby was rocking a GPS device inside, and I'm not joking, the life-size ceramic figurine. And that GPS led cops to a nearby apartment where the poor baby was found face down on a carpet, and an 18-year-old woman was arrested for theft as a result. So I'm not promoting theft, destruction of property, or anything like that, especially when it comes to like religious symbols or whatnot. But lawn ornaments make me laugh in general, and I'm sorry, but the thought of a plastic light-up baby Jesus as a hood ornament still makes me laugh, (laughs) and I'm not belittling religious or religious symbols or iconography either. I'm just talking about lawn art. It's always tickled my funny bone just because it does. But who the fuck spends tons of money on an outdoor ornament to begin with, A, um, it's going to be exposed to the elements. And yeah, to anyone who might be up for thieving, uh, both churches and community centers now have taken to use GPS or security cameras to keep track of their outdoor displays, as have families. In 2008, the Herrera family of Richland Hills, Texas, added surveillance cameras to their backyard eventually getting footage of a teenage girl stealing a baby Jesus that they had that was worth almost $500. Okay, outdoor lawn art, $500. Prior to the 2008 GPS event with that community center, uh, baby Jesus was stolen for two, sorry, for two consecutive years from that Wellington, Florida community. Their original figurine, the original... And I, I actually wrote in my notes, the original Jesus, <laughs> uh, it was made in Italy and worth about $1,800. That's a lot of money on a baby Jesus. Are you? Sa- right. That's all I'm saying. Like, and I, so I, this just made me think of my friend Paul and like we, how we would laugh about this stuff. But then I'm like, wait, people actually spend money on this? And like, I could see like, you know, community centers or a church or whatever, but like a family had a $500 Jesus outside? Like, I just, I don't know. I would never put anything that expensive out out front. What's my sir? I said, Sharon, I think we're living the wrong life. I think really? this, this sounds pretty great. Uh, baby, uh, baby Italian Jesus worth about $1,800. That sounds pretty great. Hmm. I mean, you have that money. <laughs> I just can't think of other uses for it. <laughs> I can think of much better uses for it. Give that money to charity. Come on. That's, you know, tis the season to be giving. So give that money to charity. Like what you spend that much money on a baby Jesus that's probably going to get stolen or defiled in some way by like teenagers or whatever who are bored. Like get a plastic one for 20 bucks. 
and give the rest of that money to hungry, needy families around Christmas time. This yeah. is like this is why I hate Christmas <laughs> is because of the consumerism and like, you know, it's just it's just this focus on consumerism and excess and like and it starts the day before Thanksgiving. It's just like the most American holiday of like it's, you know, worshiping the corporate dollar uh, or the whatever the fuck I'm trying to say. It's just <laughs> capitalist. Ca- yeah, it's it's a capitalist holiday it's not a christian holiday anymore and it has like nothing to do with being kind or giving it's like all about like punching people in the face over a fucking uh tv that's on sale at walmart right right because <laughs> you you want the last one <laughs> when we were when i was little my parents especially mostly really for halloween more so than christmas but we would do outdoor decorations but we never put anything outside that was like that. Like, I mean, we put stuff outside that like, okay, so if our inflatable Snoopy, like for Christmas time somehow got stolen or whatever, that sucks, but it wasn't expensive. You know what I mean? Like you just don't, I just, I think that if you, yeah, what you just said, like don't put a freaking $1,800 statue made in Italy out front if you don't want it to get stolen or whatever. And also why is why are you spending that much money on a decoration? Exactly. Anyway, I just thought of the idea of my friend's truck and the image of a glowing plastic Jesus as the hood ornament. And sadly, once again, technology ruins all the fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. did, did people have light up baby Jesuses? Yeah, like plastic. Most nativity scenes that like when we were growing up that we would see driving around our like suburb were plastic and would like glow, like light up. Oh, man, I don't think I've ever seen a, a glowing baby Jesus. That's pretty funny. Oh, for real? Uh, yeah, it should be mentioned that this same night that we were driving around, we were bored and we weren't of age. So it's like we couldn't go to bars and we couldn't, you know, what would we do? We talked about stealing lawn ornament and making jokes about it. And it was actually, I think, the same night, Sharon, that we moved your neighbor's plastic playhouse. Was it onto your front yard or the backyard? But um, I think it was our backyard but it's super funny that you mentioned that because um, if you're new to the show, uh, Mindy and I, we talk about synchronicities all the time. And so, yeah, that night that you took that plastic playhouse and put it in our backyard, something that happened like 20 years ago, and it's totally random. We actually talked about that just a few days ago on Thanksgiving <gasps> with my mom. Aww. So, yeah. Spencer and me, we went over to my mom's house and it was just the three of us, like a small, like as safe and distanced Thanksgiving dinner as you possibly can um, during these times. Um, But we started talking about like we grew up with a corner house and corner houses suck. I will never, ever, ever buy a corner house. We had so many crazy things happen to us just because when you live on a corner, you're you have like an extra side of exposure to the neighborhood and so yeah we got into this conversation about like all the crazy shit that happened to us like there was one time when my brother and I were little and um we came home from the store and we're bringing groceries into the house and then like all of a sudden there's cops surrounding our house and they caught a robber in our backyard and they had him like on the ground like pinned up against our back fence and we're just like bringing groceries in and out 
And apparently he robbed a store and they chased him through the neighborhood for like a mile and ended up catching him in our backyard because we just had like a chain link fence that anyone could have just like hopped over. So there was that. And then my mom told me about a story when I guess I was just like a few months old. She was in the kitchen feeding me and someone threw a brick or no, it was a, a big rock through our kitchen window that like narrowly missed hitting me. Oh so I could have been killed. Um, and then there was another time where she came home and there was this like half naked guy on the side of our garage. Top half or bottom half? I don't know. <laughs> she did not specify. Um, but he was like putting on women's clothing and she was like, what are you doing? And he goes, oh, I was just changing because uh, there was a play at the high school tonight and the high school is like two blocks away from our house. My mom later found out that there was nothing going on at the high school that night. What the fuck? Also, it wasn't like the high school was across the street. It was like <laughs> two blocks away. So yeah, literally made no sense. We have no idea what that guy was doing. And then there was a time when someone actually did steal some of our lawn ornaments. We had like those ugly um, plastic swans that were like planters. Yeah. Um, so at like 11 o'clock at night, my mom heard something in our backyard and saw like a couple of teenagers like running out of our yard holding these planters so my mom's like running down the street in her nightgown at like 11 at night like screaming at these kids that was not us to be fair I know I know um but they were really heavy so they like just dropped them and like booked it and she like had to carry them back into the backyard but then I was like oh yeah and there's that time that my friend she didn't know who this was but I was like there was a time that my friends put that like kids playhouse in our yard I was like yeah that was Mindy and our other friend John and she was like really so yeah I totally ratted you out on Thanksgiving Mindy well and to be fair the playhouse was from like a neighbor that lived like across the street from you so it was in an area they would have easily seen it that's why we did it so it's not like they would have woken up like they would have been like this isn't in our yard but as soon as they went outside they would have seen it from like where they lived so that was why we that's we just thought it was funny. That's funny because my mom was like, did they steal that from someone's house? I was like, no, my friends would never steal something from someone's house and do that. I'm like, they probably found it in someone's trash and brought it over. But you guys totally stole it. Well, it, we moved it from a lo- one lawn to another. We'll put it that That's way. That's called stealing, Mindy. <laughs> That's still theft. Hey, they got it oh, back. Yeah. I mean, whatever. I mean, I guess they did. I don't I don't even know what happened. I don't remember. But um, that was yeah, that's so weird and random that you brought that up. And we just mentioned that like out of nowhere just a few days ago. Yeah. Oh, love synchronicities. Yeah. We gave up on baby Jesus and then just moved the playhouse into your backyard. (laughs) (laughs) Are you ready to end these good vibes and tell us your next story? (laughs) And on that note. Let's talk about the Lawson Family Massacre of 1929. (laughs) Let's do it. I'm going to drink some more podcast juice and sit back and relax. I like that. This beer is a little too strong for me, but I've been chugging on water. So, okay. So this is, we're going to go back a little further than Sharon's story to 1929. Uh, So Sharon, you were in World War II. We're now in the Great Depression. Yay. Tis the season to be jolly. La 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 la. Seriously, that's the only time you'll ever hear Sharon sing Christmas music. Ever. <laughs> All right. Well, 
Here we go. On the afternoon of Christmas Day, 1929, in Germantown, North Carolina, tobacco farmer Charlie Lawson, 43, shot and bludgeoned six of his seven children and his wife before turning the gun on himself in the snowy woods of his Stokes County farm. And that's the start, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and we there, there's actually a lot of pictures associated with like the original homestead and all this, that, and the other. So we'll post a lot of that stuff online, um, which is interesting, though, to look at all of that. But a little background. Uh, as sharecroppers, uh, the family had finally saved enough money to buy their own farm just two years before the tragedy happened. Uh, not long before that fateful Christmas morning, the whole family actually went into town to buy new clothes for a family portrait, which would prove to be the last photo taken of them alive. Uh, since new clothes and portraits were unusual luxuries for working class families of the era, many have since seen this as proof of premeditation on Charlie Lawson's part, uh, perhaps immortalizing his loved ones before destroying them. Um, and it is a kind of a haunting picture knowing that we, we can post that. Charlie Lawson had been married to Fanny Manring for 18 years, during which time they had eight children, four sons and four daughters. Their third child, William, died in 1920. The following details were cobbled together from sources that we will list in the episode notes and mention later. Quite a few websites, though, to pull this from. So... A rough timeline, the winter of 1929 was rough in Rockingham and Stokes counties uh, with a deep snowfall that made conditions even more bitter that Christmas, which is not good for if you're a farmer. Um, after shooting two of his daughters, Carrie Lee, 12, and Maybell, 7, near the barn, Lawson made his way to the porch of his family's cabin and shot his wife, Fanny. Inside, he gunned down daughter Marie, 17, then bludgeoned his tiny sons, James, 4, and Raymond, 2, before doing the same to Mary Lou, who was three months old. Lawson placed all of his victims' heads on pillows and folded their hands across their chests. He used two stones from his tobacco barn as headrests for the two daughters he shot and bludgeoned outdoors. With the family's two dogs, Sam and Queen, Lawson retreated to the woods with two shotguns, stopping to wash his bloody hands in a creek. Footprints showed that he had paced in a circle around a tree, perhaps for hours before shooting himself. Uh, authorities found two notes in Lawson's pockets scrawled on tobacco auction receipts. One read, trouble can cause dot dot dot. And the other simply read, nobody to blame. Uh, it on Christmas Eve, it was reported that Charlie actually withdrew all of the money from his bank account, which was $60 uh, in cash, which was later found rolled up in his pocket and used to cover the funeral arrangements. In rural North Carolina during the 1920s, rabbit hunting was quite a popular sport on Christmas Day. So gunshots like the ones that rang out as Lawson killed his family could have been taken for granted as such sounds were pretty commonplace out in the country by the way sixty dollars back then is about nine hundred dollars today which still for a family of what ten nine or ten people is not a lot of money right right yeah and we'll talk about that a little bit more later but yeah 
Um, Lawson, uh, he killed all but one of his children, Arthur, who was age 16 at the time. With his father's permission, the teenager had walked with a friend to Walnut Cove to buy, oddly enough, ammunition, but for rabbit hunting. Lawson murdered the family while his son was gone, and some speculate Lawson feared Arthur would intervene and interrupt the slaying spree. Um, There's a rumor that the Christmas cake that daughter Marie, age 17, had baked but never served her family was still sitting out when the bodies were discovered by relatives late in the afternoon when they visited to wish the family a Merry Christmas. The cabin's rooms were blood-soaked and furnishings were in disarray. Snow uh, on the ground made the steep hill leading to the Lawson cabin difficult to mount, so family members, friends, and deputies transported bodies wrapped in borrowed bedsheets by a makeshift sled to hearses parked at the main road. Hearses delivered the bodies to a funeral home in Walnut Cove, but the establishment was too small to handle the task of embalming and autopsying eight bodies. So corpses were reloaded and motored through snow to Madison's Yelton Funeral Parlor located above Penn Hardware Company at 104 West Murphy Street. Um, Today, Madison Dry Goods County Store sits on the original site of this funeral home. There is a small museum dedicated to the Lawson family, which includes newspaper clippings and old photos of the family. Uh, Tourists still come, and the store offers group tours of their museum. And yes, they do have a website, uh, which we'll post in the show notes, but it's simply madisondrygoods.com. That's such a depressing museum. Right? I don't think I would want to go visit that. No, but it is very cool that they decided to memorialize this family. Yes, it is It is nice that they wanted to memorialize the family, but also it, that, God, that is just such like a, de- a depressing, like, yeah, I, I mean, I'm definitely fascinated with true crime. I, I'm not sure I would actually want to go to that museum. If you want to go to a museum and get depressed, go to this museum. Well, there's another de- there's another museum that you probably would have found more depressing, which we'll get to in a second, but it's no longer in existence. Uh, Dr. C.J. Hasselbeck of Danbury was the Stokes County coroner who presided over the autopsies on the night of December 25th, 1929. Uh, Dr. Spotswood Taylor, brother of the Stokes County Sheriff John Taylor, happened to be home for Christmas from John Hopkins Medical Center in Baltimore, where he was serving as an intern. So he helped with the inquiries, working into the wee hours with Hasselbeck in Madison. Uh, Taylor assisted Hasselbeck in removing the brain of Charlie Lawson for the examination that night and saw to a more in-depth analysis back in Baltimore at John Hopkins. Taylor returned to Maryland with Lawson's brain preserved in a jar of formaldehyde, but the brain's ending location isn't known, Um, Hmm. which is interesting. Yeah. Initial autopsy reports noted that Charlie Lawson's brain was relatively small and that a portion of the center of the brain seemed underdeveloped. Interesting. Yeah. On December 27th, 1929... Five hearses lined Murphy Street, where huge crowds gathered to see the seven Lawson caskets loaded for transport to the funeral at a mass grave at Brower Cemetery near Germantown. 
and I do, well, I have pics of that as well. Um, while eight bodies were embalmed, only seven caskets were buried. Infant Mary Lou was laid to rest, nestles, nestled in the arms of her mother, Fanny, age 37. Aww. Lawson shot and bludgeoned his first four victims, but only bludgeoned his two youngest sons and infant daughter. Arthur Lawson, the sole survivor of the family, grew up, got married, and had four children. Um, sadly, he suffered from severe alcoholism, I wonder why, and ended up passing away in a car accident in 1945 at the age of 32. Uh, Charlie Lawson was said to have behaved erratically in the months leading up to the slayings and complained to his Danbury doctor, C.J. Halsebeck, about severe headaches and insomnia, according to numerous historical accounts of the crime and testimonials in the book The Meaning of Our Tears by author and crime historian Trudy J. Smith, which I'll get back to in a second. So what the fuck? Like, what happened? Why Why did this happen? Um, naturally, small town rumors and gossip abounded as to the reason for the slayings. And one rumor was, oddly... <laughs> that Lawson hadn't committed the murders at all, that he was a witness to some sort of organized crime and his he and his family were murdered by gangsters to keep them quiet. So that's odd that that was a theory, Sharon, in your story too. Um, that was probably the theory in like most murders. Uh, yeah, <laughs> this is true. This is true. I don't know how prevalent the yeah. mafia was. We should probably do a mafia episode one day and do a little research into that. Yeah, for sure. Um, some witnesses and family members reported that Lawson murdered his family because he felt ashamed for impregnating his oldest daughter, Marie, who was 17. Oh, uh, no. Yeah. Such theories are put forth in detail in Trudy Smith's book. Um, Smith, the author, provided more support for this theory, including conversations with one of Marie's closest friends who claimed that Marie had told her that Charlie had gotten her pregnant. It should be said that no autopsy report ever detailed Marie Lawson as being pregnant, but I mean, who knows how hard they looked or if that was something they even looked for, you know. That was what I was going to ask. Was there any sort of evidence in the autopsy that would suggest that she was even pregnant? Ugh. Yeah. Uh, Soon after the funerals, uh, Sharon, you had mentioned fun museums to go to. Unfortunately, (laughs) this one is no longer open. But soon after the funerals, a brother of Charlie Lawson opened the crime scene for Macabre Tours. Uh, The cabin. Of course. Why not make money off your family's tragedy? It's the American way, right? Well, the cabin was left disheveled and bloodstained for authenticity. Marion Lawson defended his decision to offer tours of his brother's home, claiming he needed to raise money for Lawson's orphaned son, Arthur, to use in settling the farm's mortgage. (coughs) Bullshit. (coughs) Bullshit. (laughs) Um, Among the thousands of visitors to the house from across the nation, one of which was the infamous mobster John Dillinger, freshly escaped from prison. He reportedly made a side trip to Germantown with his girlfriend and a criminal associate while en route to Florida. Dillinger is said to have left a note on the door of an area lawman mocking him for missing America's most wanted of the era, according to accounts in Smith's Chronicle. (laughs) Wow. I had to add that. So what the fuck? Like, what happened? Um, 
so Trudy. Yes, what did happen? <laughs> author Trudy J. Smith, who wrote uh, The Meeting of Our Tears and the previously released White Christmas, Bloody Christmas, seems to think that incest was the main reason for those murders. Um, again, in the uh, Meeting of Our Tears book, uh, Smith claims to have two separate sources that claim that Marie confided in them that she was, in fact, pregnant. But also finances were an issue. It had been an especially dry year, and the Great Depression was right around the corner. Charlie had also apparently injured himself with a mattock to the head, which I had to Google, but a mattock is essentially like a pickaxe type thing. And he got it stuck in his head at one point while working on the farm, so ouch. That's a bad splinter. Right? So could that have caused brain damage to somehow just affect his decision making decision making decision making from then on and maybe cause some sort of brain damage and made him do that to his family that or maybe he had some sort of mental illness to be to begin with um the autopsy did report that there was a part of his brain that was underdeveloped so it could have been one or the other we don't know obviously at this point yeah and as we already know that people who already have a mental illness an injury to the head can worsen that and cause you know like a uh who knows any possible range of things a flip to switch a flip to switch what the fuck am i trying to say a a flip (laughs) has possibly been switched i don't know I can't talk. We'll just cut this out because obviously I've had too much podcast juice. All right. Anyways, go ahead. Sorry. No, it's okay. <laughs> the one thing though, like toward like about the whole mental illness thing, I don't know that this is an argument against it necessarily. I don't think so. But the one thing to keep in mind is this seems to be have, this this seems to have been premeditated um, because like the whole thing about how he took his family for that nice portrait like the week before. It just was uh, the withdrawal of his money from his his bank account. Like, it sounds to me like he was planning on doing it. But I mean, it could have been financial. It could have been mental illness. It could have been, you know, public shame. It could have been. It seems like it was probably a combination of all those things between, you know, maybe the wrath of his wife for finding out that he was having an incestuous relationship with his daughter and getting her pregnant. I mean, that's bad enough as it is. Right. Uh, But then having no money and having to take care of his family. And, you know, in that case, people do crazy, crazy things. And then if he's already had some underdeveloped brain and then he's got this uh, brain injury possibly from this pickaxe, you know, that who knows? Who knows what could happen from that? And then he probably was like, you know, at this point, I just want to end it all and not have to make them suffer any more than they have to. And so I'll kill them. But what's the point of withdrawing the money if he was going to kill himself? Um, To pay for the funeral costs. I mean, but... Couldn't they have done that anyways if the money was still in the bank? I I, I don't know. <laughs> Minnie, yeah. why don't you know? Why aren't you I, I don't know what 1929 in the 1920s family <laughs> heritage things were going on with the law. I don't know. But right, I forgive you. Speaking of survivors, not really, but I'm sort of a transition. Uh, I feel bad for poor Arthur. The sole survivor who was the teenager who ran to the store while his dad decided to get kill everybody um he did survive and 
unsurprisingly, was an alcoholic for most of his life and died at the age of 32. That's so sad, leaving behind a wife and kids. But imagine his survivor's guilt. Jesus, I can't even. It's horrible. Yeah. So that's kind of a downer, but that's the story of the Lost (laughs) Family Massacre. That's the thing with true crime podcasts. And when we do true crime episodes, they're usually downers, but they teach you a lesson. Nobody said horse talk horror is all fun and games. That is true. <laughs> no one has ever said that. Um, but we can make it more fun because I have some more uplifting things to talk about. Oh, good. Um, I don't have any more true crime uh, stories to talk about, but I have some strange Christmas traditions that I found um, that honestly, if we still practice these traditions today, I would be a much bigger fan of this holiday (laughs) and I am going to start bringing some of these traditions back. All right. Also, I also think we should start a petition, Mindy, (laughs) to try and bring these, um, these things. Well, I guess you don't really need a petition. Just fucking do them. Yeah. Um, And that'll bring them back. So Christmas actually used to be a much darker holiday than it is now. And uh, yeah, I'm going to talk about some of the the things that people used to do around Christmas that they don't really do anymore. All right. First, people used to tell scary ghost stories around Christmas. The tradition of holiday ghost stories goes much, much farther back, farther perhaps than Christmas itself. When the night grows long and the year is growing to a close, it's only natural that people feel an instinct to gather together. At the end of the year, it also makes sense to think about people and places that are no longer with us. Thus, the Christmas ghost story. In the song, The Most Wonderful Time of the Year, if you hear the line, there'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories, which... I never really paid attention to the words of that song, so I didn't even know that they said that. Me neither. But if you, I know, yeah, if if you were a person to pay attention to that song or you know <laughs> the words to that song, you may wonder why there would be scary ghost stories to tell on Christmas. You might also be curious as to why A Christmas Carol, one of the most famous Christmas stories of all time, is a ghost story. Well, the Victorians who helped cement many of our modern American ideas of Christmas loved scary stories. In fact, A Christmas Carol was far from the only Christmas-themed ghost stories that Charles Dickens wrote. I was also not aware of that. Me neither. Um, So yeah, Christmas ghost stories are essentially about a darker, older Um, tales of more fundamental things such as winter, death, rebirth, and the rap connection between a teller and his or her audience. Mm. So Christmas is celebrated in Europe and the U.S. was originally connected to the pagan winter solstice celebration and the festival known as Yule. Because of its long cold night, Yule was also considered by many to be the day when the spirits and ghosts were most likely to be able to interact with the living. Mm. Also something I did not know because usually you associate that with Halloween and um, 
the Day of the Dead or what is the... Dias de los Muertos. Uh, yeah. So believe it or not, Christmas was actually once a more spooky and scary holiday rather than warm and fuzzy. And we need to bring that back. <laughs> Please. Um, also, people used to celebrate the supernatural. So it wasn't just ghost stories that made Christmas the most eerie time of the year. There used to be a huge supernatural component to Christmas. For example, in some parts of Europe, it was believed that supernatural activity was at a high on Christmas Eve, uh, sort of the way the Day of the Dead is uh, now. In Italy, it was bad luck to be born on the winter solstice, which is December 20th to the 21st. If you were born on those days, it was basically a surefire way to become a shapeshifter. <laughs> nice. Damn it, I was born on the wrong day. Uh, yeah, my godson was born on the 21st, so uh, I don't think he's a shapeshifter. That you know of, that right? I know of, but you know. Um, in many other European countries, such as Poland, our motherland, <laughs> Mindy, um, it was believed that children born on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day automatically became werewolves when they grew up. That and is that true. Just makes, that is true. I mean, obviously, like you and I both have like a long line of werewolves in our family. Um, so, yeah, we, <laughs> we, we know this pierogi loving werewolves wait so is it only polish people that are born on those days that become werewolves or is it anybody born on christmas eve or christmas day that become werewolves it's probably just the polish ones why do you gotta ask so many questions spencer it's probably everybody but just the polish believe it right and people say polish people are dumb (laughs) preposterous um In Germany, a child was in danger of becoming a werewolf if they were born during the 12 nights of Christmas, which ran from December 25th until the Feast of the Epiphany on January 6th. Um, My dad was born on January 6th, so he might be a werewolf. In Germany. And he's German. Well, he's German. Um, Whatever the country... And the legend, it was generally agreed upon that the lupine curse was some sort of divine punishment for blasphemy as the hapless baby was viewed as competing with the Christ child. How dare he? Uh, Yeah. So, boom, you're a werewolf. Um, So many kinds of rituals were vigorously performed for the first few days after Christmas to help the infant avoid his wolfish fate uh in romania wait wait who cares about the the fact that jesus was born in like june or something well i mean anyway romania yeah why are we paying attention to facts now spencer um (laughs) late too late for that (laughs) um In Romania, this legend went a step further. Children conceived on Christmas Eve were cursed to become werewolves because their parents were supposed to have abstained from sex at that time. Naughty parents. Bad, bad. Yeah, they are naughty parents. (laughs) According to Slovenian folklore... Farmers would make a special effort not to leave manure lying in the fields all over Christmas season by plowing it into the soil. Because apparently, I mean, this is pretty much common knowledge. One of the easiest ways to become a werewolf is just rolling in manure. So um, if you ever see someone rolling in manure, 
get a silver bullet and shoot them. <laughs> uh, Biff from Back to the Future, we got to take him out. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. So, um, and then this is, this is my favorite um, thing that I found. The 13 Yule Lads, Iceland's own mischievous Santa Clauses. So Iceland has not one, but 13 Father Christmases called the Yule Lads. These merry but mischievous fellows take turns visiting kids on the 13 nights leading up to Christmas. No way. On each of those nights, children place one of their shoes on the windowsill. For good boys and girls, the Yule Lad will leave candy. If not, the Yule Lads are not subtle in expressing their disapproval. They will fill the shoe with rotting potatoes. Um, it gets much darker from here. <laughs> oh, I love this. All rotting right. potatoes are pretty dark. Ah, uh, just wait. Don't think well-behaved Icelandic kids have a sweet deal all around. They may enjoy 13 Santa Claus-like visits, but they also have to contend with their mother, Grilla. Throughout the year, it is said that she collects whispers about children around the island who are misbehaving. And when winter sets in, she sets out to gather them. She comes down from the mountains on Christmas and boils naughty children alive and turns them into a giant stew that will sustain her until the next winter. Oh my God, Spencer's <laughs> video of me because <laughs> I'm being very active right now with my <laughs> hands and everything I, I didn't get enough though i'm gonna kill you proceed spencer proceed. um so grilla would be terrible enough if she worked alone sadly for icelandic children she does not she shares her mountain cave in north iceland with an enormous black feline called the christmas cat which also has an appetite for human flesh this giant, bloodthirsty black kitty happily preys on any child that did not get new clothes to wear for Christmas. What the um, fuck? Yes. So in Iceland, there is a uh, 13 Santa Claus. Just, just to, um, you know, kind just of a uh, recap. a recap here. There are 13 Santa Clauses. They have a mother named Grilla who... who hunts down naughty children and boils them alive into a stew that she feasts on to sustain her throughout the year until she can do this again. She also has a pet cat who eats naughty children. No, I'm sorry. Who just eats children who did not get new clothes for Christmas. Also, it's enormous. So yeah, if your parents decided to buy you toys and candy and fun stuff and not like- or if a, they're just poor. Or if they're just poor- too bad. You're fucked. Christmas yeah. cat's going to come down and eat you. Um, and Grilla also lives with her latest husband, a troll named, um, I apologize to anyone who is from Iceland. Icelandic language is very, very hard. And I'm going to fuck up this name. Uh, Le Poluthi? Uh, yeah, I think Lepaluthi. Let's, Le, let's say that. Uh, yeah, sure. I apologize if I mispronounce that. Um, but he is actually the least threatening member of her family. He's completely browbeaten to the point of being pathetic. Perhaps out of fear 
of what happened to Grela's previous partners, but he basically exerts no influence over her evil tendencies. I want to know about her previous husbands. Yeah, I do too. Um, Yeah, good, good point. Um, I'm assume they're part of a stew. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) at this point, and have and have been eaten by Grela. Um, Apparently, the Yule lads used to be a lot more creepy than they are today, and in 1746. Parents were officially banned from tormenting their kids with monster stories about these particular creatures. <laughs> Today, they're mostly benign, save for the harmless tricks that they used to play. So imagine the government being like, um, no, these stories that you're telling your kids are just like way too brutal and scary. You are not allowed to tell these stories anymore. Please stop this, traumatizing your children. This is a country I want to move to. Awesome. I think that, I mean, come on, we, we need to uh, have some of this in the U.S. This is fascinating. Um, so now I'm going to read the names of the 13 Santa Clauses according to the National Museum of Iceland, which describes the Yule Lads as follows. There is sheep coat clod who tries to suckle ewes in farmer's sheep sheds. Okay. There is... Gully Gawk, he steals foam from buckets of cow's milk. There's Stubby, who is short and steals food from frying pans. Um, we have Spoon Licker. Can you guess what he does, Mindy? Lick spoons? <laughs> ding, ding, ding. <laughs> wow, very on the there nose is, with their naming. Right. Well, of course, these names, I'm reading them in English um still they, they're much more poetic in Icelandic probably. exactly yes but I would not even attempt to try and pronounce all 13 of these <laughs> Santa Claus's names in Icelandic because I would fail miserably um Spoonlicker reminds me of one of those names do you remember that Tosh.0 bit he did where he made up fake names of things and he said is it racist yes <laughs> and I think they were I think not Spoonlicker was one I of think them. it was might have been Spoonface Oh, yes, it was. But they were fake things that are not racist in any way. But he had to pay people said if they felt it was racist or not. Yes. And people did feel that spoon face was such a spoon licker was very racist. Okay, Um, there's pot scraper, a.k.a. pot licker, who steals unwashed pots and licks them clean. Um, That kind of sounds like Spencer, actually. Oh, no, actually, the next one sounds more like Spencer. (laughs) Bowl licker. I'm a spoon licker, too. Uh, That's true. Like Spencer will lick all his plates bowls pots whatever clean um so we don't really wash our dishes around here (laughs) good to good to know spencer takes care of that um just kidding if you come over don't eat anything off of our dishes (laughs) use paper plates bring your own um so bowl licker he steals bowls of food from under the beds because i guess back in the old days Icelanders used to sometimes store bowls of food there, you know, just in case you get hungry in the middle of the night. Sharon, don't look under the bed. (laughs) I mean, why get Um, up and go to the fridge when you can just have it right there under your bed? Right. I'm going to start doing that. Um, Door slammer. He stomps around and slams doors, keeping everyone awake. There is skier gobbler. He eats up all the Icelandic yogurt, which is called skier. Um, there is sausage swiper. He loves stolen sausages. Don't um, we all? Wait, wait. He loves stolen sausages, or he steals sausages. I mean, <laughs> he, he doesn't. I think he loves them, so that's why he steals them. Sausage swiper also sounds like something else, right? 
<laughs> that you can use your imagination <laughs> for. Um, window peeper. Yeah, some of these guys just sound totally perverted. Um, window peeper. He likes to creep outside windows and sometimes steals the stuff he sees inside. There's door sniffer. He has a huge nose and an insatiable appetite for stolen baked goods. What? I don't know why they called him door sniffer instead of like cake sniffer or like bread sniffer. Um, whatever. Meat hook. These are okay. Once again, these are Santa Claus names. Meat hook's the one that's in the horror movie. I, I don't know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Meat Hook. Yes, he's in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> um, he snatches up any meat left out, especially smoked lamb. And then finally, we have Candle Beggar. He steals candles, which used to be sought after items in Iceland. Um, yeah, so those are the 13 Santa Clauses of Iceland. And it's funny because Spencer and I were actually, we were in Iceland for a while, two years ago, and we were in a, a town in the north called Ekureri, which once again, I apologize, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, um, but we it's a super cute little town up there. It's the biggest town in the north, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, I think and, it's the second largest town in the country. I, I think so, outside of Reykjavik. Um, but we were walking down the street and they had these two huge uh, trolls, like these statues that were just sitting outside of this um, gift store. And so we took pictures with them and I just assumed that they were, I don't know, just trolls. I didn't know who they were, what their names were. Um, and it was in August, so it was nowhere near Christmas time. But while I was researching this story, I found pictures of those same trolls that we took photos with in Icareri, and they are actually Grilla and her husband. Oh. So, but yeah, I think that's really cool now that that's, now that we know who those trolls are, because it's part of their folklore, you know, trolls and fairies and... Right, right. Yeah, didn't didn't actually associate them with being anything specific. So I definitely um, would love to go back to Iceland around Christmas time yeah. because I think they have um, like big festivals and celebrations there and Christmas is just like a really big deal there. And I'm not into Christmas really, but their Christmas. Yeah, <laughs> like, this is fascinating. It just sounds so much more fun and a, a lot more interesting than I think the way we celebrate it here. Plus, for those of you who have never been to Iceland, they also have a penis museum Ooh. and a Big Lebowski theme bar. So if you like penises or the Big Lebowski. <laughs> <laughs> or torturing your children with frightening stories to scar them into being uh, obedient. Travel Iceland. Uh, you're welcome, Iceland, for that promotion. Anyways. <laughs> Well, thank you for that, Sharon. That was very educational. <laughs> and and definitely, um, you know, made us forget about all the uh, the horrible child murders that we <laughs> read about the rest of the episode. <laughs> Jesus. Moral of the story is that Christmas can bring fear in all sorts of different ways. Happy holidays. Yeah. Happy holidays. All right. Thank you all for listening to us. As always, you can write us at whorestalkwhore at gmail.com. Uh, please share 
any fucked up holiday stories that you have. It doesn't even have to be Christmas related. You know, it could be Easter or St. Patrick's Day, whatever fucked up holiday story you want to share with us. Also write us with your ghost stories, uh, creepy stories. Um, what else, Mindy? If you were ever in a cult and you got out and survived, do you want to tell us about it? If you were born on Christmas Eve and you're a werewolf, <laughs> we want to know about it. Yes, yes. If you if you went through one of those rituals to make you not a werewolf, we definitely want to hear what <laughs> that was like. Please subscribe to us. Uh, you can rate and review us on whatever platform you listen to us on. It really, really helps us get more notice. Uh, so if you're, you know, you're on Apple Podcasts and you're searching horror, our podcast will pop up higher than all the other like tens of thousands of horror podcasts out there. The more people who subscribe and the more reviews we have, you know, it just helps us get noticed. It's free to do. It doesn't take very long. Uh, We would really, really appreciate it. Um, Also, Mindy, we have a Patreon. We do. Subscribe to us on Patreon. Um, You can get early access to episodes, um, some random fun uh, members only content posts uh, sometimes we send you some cool fun stuff so check yeah check that out um we have our upcoming 2020 horror movies our like year-end review coming up um we god we've probably watched um combined about 50 movies we're gonna have a two-part episode so you're going to want to listen to that if you want some recommendations yeah and always just you know or as always please be kind to each other be safe and as always thanks thanks for for getting getting creepy with us sharon you want a beer uh oh my god